Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My Angular Story. This week, we're talking to James Shore. James, do you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. Now, uh, you were on episode 205. We talked about Agile Fluency and the Agile Fluency Project. Do you want to give us just a little bit more of an introduction? Sure. Um, My name is James Shore, obviously. I have been involved in the software industry since uh, 1991, and I've been working with Agile Methods since 1999. I wrote a book called The Art of Agile Development, which is about 10 years old now and really needs to be updated. But <laughs> actually, <laughs> you know, it's I wrote it to be fairly evergreen, so it doesn't have a lot of tech-specific specific technologies, so it's right. still fairly current. Well, cool. And it's interesting. I've been uh, doing software development for about 12 years. And I remember getting in and I think that's when the agile development movement really was starting to just get really, really hot. We, you know, we had a lot of the, I don't want to say new, but we had a lot of methodologies coming out or getting refined. It seems like extreme programming been out for a while. And so it was interesting just to kind of get that, that feel for where things were and, and, oh, wow, you know, this is such a better way of doing things. And it feels like it's kind of, we've kind of gone away from that now. So yeah, I think we I, have. I don't know what people are doing now, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. I really... So 12 years ago, it would have been about 2006. Yeah. And yeah, it definitely feels like things have taken a step backwards. In the 2000s, there was a lot of energy around doing software really well. And now mm-hmm. these days, it seems... And, and it was sort of a, a programmer-led movement that was starting yes. to go away at, in 2006. But now it really feels like it's turned into this this bureaucracy, uh, this project management burden, rather than really being a tool for programmers to do great work. And I, I always, I, I find that kind of depressing, to be honest. Well, to me, it feels, yeah, it, it feels bureaucratic and things like that, like you're saying. But the thing that I find ironic is that that is really the antithesis of what agile development was. <laughs> and so... It, it uh, really is. You know, Agile was designed as a way of getting away from this sort of dehumanizing programmers are plug replaceable parts that was prevalent in software development in the 90s. And it seems like we're going back to that, or at least going back to a, a perspective where excellence is, is no longer the priority, excellence in your craft, so to speak. Yeah, well, and that speaks a lot to the software craftsmanship movement. That also was kind of crested around that time as well. Yeah, well, that'd be Bob Martin, and he was heavily involved in the extreme programming movement. Yeah. And I, I suspect, although you'd have to ask him, I suspect that the software craftsmanship movement was his sort of attempt to hold on to that that feeling of, of excellence that was part of extreme programming in the early days mm-hmm. when the project management sort of wing of things kind of started taking over in the late 2000s, you know, he was, he was trying to bring that back. But I, th- I think that was a mistake, to be honest, because one of, the, one of the brilliant things about the Agile movement 
was that it was about bringing together all disciplines into a unified team, mm -hmm. not just having a programmer, you know, programmer side and a project management side, but actually having programmers talk directly to their users and their customers and so they could better understand what to build. Yeah, 100%. This show is kind of a, a walk back through your story and your story getting into development. And so I, I think what might be useful just to kind of get to some of these points is to talk about how you got into this stuff. So let, let's back up and talk about how you got into programming and then we can kind of go ahead from there. Yeah, absolutely. I was always fascinated with programming. I got started, oh, I don't even know how long ago. When I was a kid, when I was 10 or 11, my, my parents sent me to a computer camp and I brought home a Timex Sinclair 1000. Have you ever seen this thing? I'm not sure. My grandpa, when I was a kid and I grew up in the 80s, he came home with a whole bunch of different little machines. So I may have seen one or something like it. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the Timex Sinclair was a tiny little plastic box. It was about the size of a, of a moleskin notebook. So, you know, eight inches by five inches. Mm -hmm. And it had this membrane keyboard that didn't even have proper buttons, but it was more like a really cheap calculator. And uh, you, you, you sort of push down on the membrane and it would, it would put the character on. It had a whopping 2K of memory. Wow. And, <laughs> that was a ton back then. <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, I got a 16K RAM pack expansion and it was, it was the best thing ever. So yeah, that's, that's really <laughs> how, I got, how I got involved in programming. You must have been rich. There. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then uh, later on, I got a, a Trash 80, TRS-80, a color computer, yep. Coco, and then an Apple II. So I, you know, I, I had programming in my blood, I guess you could say. Yeah, I remember when uh, color computer was a meaningful distinction. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, this, this Timex Sinclair, it, you, plugged them, you plugged these computers into your TV, right? You used a little mm -hmm. switch box that you plugged in. Of course, there was no cable to plug into. You literally disconnected the antenna from the back of the TV, plugged in this switch box, and then reconnected the antenna to the switch box. And you could switch back and forth between computer mm -hmm. and antenna. Uh, so the Timex and the, and the Coco would plug into this thing. And I had a black and white TV, which didn't matter because all the Timex could do was black and white anyway. Right. So yeah, I, um, that's how I got involved is uh, on, on this little Timex machine trying to make my programs fit into 2K of memory. And then uh, eventually went to school, take a, took a detour studying electrical engineering, which turns out to be mm -hmm. really freaking hard. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> turns out you have to understand quantum physics, which I don't. So... <laughs> That didn't work out. But uh, yeah, I ended up in, in computer science and then as a programmer eventually. That's funny. Yeah, I, I was an electrical engineering major and then I switched to computer engineering major, which is kind of spans the gap between electrical engineering and computer science. But yeah, it's still much more uh, an engineering discipline. So Yeah, that's what I was studying. I was just studying electronic engineering, which probably would be computer engineering in another, in another school, but or not power electrical engineering, but circuits and digital mm -hmm. and chips and so forth. Yep. Yeah, that's kind of the direction we went. And if you've been in the industry since 2001, uh, you are a little bit older than I am. So it's probably pretty close to the same thing. Yeah. 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 Actually, I, I got started. My first job was in 1994. So it's, uh, so I go back even a little further than that. Nice. And then I got hired out of out of school based on some stuff I wrote on Fidonet. You ever heard of Fidonet? 
Yes, I have, but I don't recall what exactly it was. Fidonet was this sort of early online forum thing that people, uh, it's sort of like, sort of like Usenet news groups, which mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for those of you listening who've never even heard of that, it's basically online bulletin, you know, uh, web yep. forums, except it was all done via telephone dial-up. These BBS operators, these basically, basically hobbyists running this out of their homes would do make long distance calls to other BBSs and exchange mail packets uh, uh-huh. all over the world. And so it was a way of having chat forums. So one of them was about basic programming, which is what I did. And I was doing, I was posting a lot there and sharing my thoughts and somebody hired me because they needed a basic programmer and saw the stuff I wrote on Fidonet. <laughs> nice. You, you were famous when the internet was small. Well, I, I would not think I was famous, but I was definitely attracted to the attention of somebody in my own, in my hometown, which is Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, got me hired, which sort of what launched my career, you know how it is. Once, once you have some experience, it doesn't matter what your degree is or anything else. It's just, uh, it's just, have you done this before? Well, so and it's, that got me going. It's funny too, because I've been working on a book on how to find a job and things like that. And, you know, this is right in line with what I'm telling people is like, look, they're not hiring you because you came in and wowed them with your prowess at programming. It's because they freaking know you can solve the problem. That's right. right? Exactly. And mm-hmm. they saw this on Fidonet, you know, not much different now, like you said, from posting it to a forum or on your blog. Somebody finds it. Oh, this person knows what they're doing. And look, they want somebody to hire them. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I didn't even post that I was looking for a job. They just contact me and say we're looking yeah. for somebody. I got very very lucky, I think. And I actually still don't know to this day what it was that I'd posted that attracted their attention. <laughs> but but uh, there you go. Yeah. So what what kinds of programming have you done? Because I know you're not an Angular expert. We brought you on to talk about agile development. But yeah, what what's your journey look like, and how did you find your way into agile development? Well, that that first job was uh, was programming basic. Uh, there was back in 1994, when it, which is when this happened, Microsoft had what they called Professional Development System Basic (PDS Basic), which was a real compiled language that you could use to make shipping software. And I was hired by a very boring company that did point of sale software for automotive glass repair shops, and their software was written in Basic. And then from there, I got hired. I don't even remember the order, but I got hired to write some C++ and C at Intel to... This was kind of interesting. I don't know if it was because of my electrical engineering background or just got lucky, but I was hired by a team at Intel doing the, the, one of the chipsets for the computers. Mm-hmm. And they had this crazy idea, which we've seen before in the computer industry. And if with more experience, I would have told them what a dumb idea it was. They were going to automatically translate their design documents into into the source code used to design their chips which so they hired me writing that software to to do that translation from frame maker documents compiling that down into what's uh called vhdl the basic Mm -hmm. hardware description language which then they would interpret in a simulator and then actually somehow convert into something that would tape out and be put on the chips then later on, I got involved with Java, or maybe that came first, and C Sharp. I've always, I, you know, other than that brief experience with C++, I've always stayed with the more garbage collected sort of web side languages. 
and I enjoy working with them a lot more. I've I've dabbled in Ruby a little bit, mm-hmm. and and of course because I did a lot of work in web-based applications doing Java, you know, and and coming up into the late '90s, 2000s. Of course, being able to program in the web was was the big deal, and it still mm-hmm. it still is. The web is you know basically taken over the hardware, taken over the application world. It's uh, it was really important to understand how to program on the front end. So I learned JavaScript as well. And then about six years ago, I had a Kickstarter to uh, launch a screencast about how to do test-driven development in JavaScript. Because at the time, yeah, at the time there wasn't a lot of work, a lot of knowledge about how to to really do agile development with JavaScript well. Mm -hmm. And so I had done a little bit with that and I wanted to launch this screencast to explore it further and to really uh, share what I knew, but also learn new things. And that was modestly successful a lot more successful than I expected it to be. And that turned into a long-running five-year screencast where I explored all kinds of things in JavaScript, testing JavaScript, including Angular and and React and Ember and other technologies. Nice. So where in all of this did you run across the idea of agile development? And how did that affect some of these other things? Because I know, for example, TDD and extreme programming kind of go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Some of these other ideas connect. So I had this really formative experience as a teenager because you know i i i was programming throughout my teens and mm-hmm. i had this this experience where i was working on a really complicated program for me it was a dnd character builder and it was the most <laughs> <laughs> as you do you know i still play dungeons and dragons to this day i get together with friends every wednesday night and we play dnd in my basement so i don't <laughs> nerd know. Um, yeah. no, I, I, I get together with my brothers and sisters and play dnd so it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's a great way to socialize. Uh, there's a lot more beer involved than when I was a teenager, uh, which, which <laughs> is probably a good thing. So I was uh, building this character thing, and it was written in BASIC. It was written in a version of BASIC that only had line numbers and go-to statements and go-subs. And it was the most complicated program I ever built at that point. And there was a moment where I literally went from having this whole thing in my head to not understanding it at all. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of all disappeared out from under me. And I, I, I could no longer remember what, what stood for what or what line number did what. And the, the program collapsed. And that, to me, was really transformative because it, it said to me that the hard part in writing software of any node is not in writing the algorithms, but in understanding how it all fits together. It's design. It's, and being able to communicate that design. And then as I worked on teams and so forth, I realized that it's not just what you can understand yourself, but how you can communicate that design to other people so they can understand how this all fits together as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I was really interested in software process and you know, structured languages and various object-oriented programming, all these different ways of working well together as a team to build software. And in the late 90s, the known best way to do that was waterfall development or phase gate development. Mm-hmm. So I was always really promoting doing that, you know, to the to the utmost degree, like really doing it by the book. And I got hired onto a team where they were doing it really by the book. They had use mm-hmm. cases and they had a giant printer, a plotter that was, I don't know, six feet wide and could make these huge wall charts. And they used a tool called Rational Rose. Have, have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. Rational rows. So in the late 90s, there was this big movement for things called case tools, computer-aided software engineering. 
And, and you, you don't hear about this anymore because it was an absolute flop. I mean, it, it was a fad and it's, it, people used it, but it didn't work. But the idea was that you would draw diagrams, UML diagrams, UML is unified markup yeah. language. You draw these diagrams in a tool like you're writing, like you're using AutoCAD or some mm-hmm. other drafting tool, and it would automatically generate your software for you. And so Rational Rose was the big one of these tools. It, it had this notable feature where if, if you renamed, when you generated code, it would delete comments that were outside of methods as being extraneous. Mm-hmm. But if you in the tool renamed a method, it would comment out the old method. And then if you ran it again, it would delete the method because uh-huh. it, was, it was comments. And it, it used a giant binary format so you, you couldn't work with somebody else in the same part of the program at the same time if you were working on the mm-hmm. same diagram. It was, it was terrible. Anyway, they were using rational rows. They had diagrams on the wall. They were doing waterfall exactly by the book and it was the worst software development experience I ever had. I realized from this that all the experiences I had from waterfall development had worked despite the processes, not because of them. Oh, wow. That's quite the realization to come to. Yeah. The quote unquote right way to do it is at best incidental to actually getting it done. It's, it was actually actively harmful to getting it yeah. done. I, as I looked back, I, I saw that the closer we hewed to the, the known good way, that the thing that people had written massive numbers of books about, the closer we had hewed to that approach to developing, the worse the projects had gone. So it was kind of a crisis of faith because I had really bought into these ideas. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking around for other things and I ran into this, this book because I was still very much into this idea of computer-aided software engineering and, mm-hmm. and modeling, but Rational Rose was a disaster. So, and the, the replacement that we had found called Together J, which would automatically create the diagrams from source code as well as go back the other way. It was called round trip engineering. Mm -hmm. That was very cool, but ultimately not actually very useful. So I found this book by Peter Coed, Code, I don't remember how to pronounce his name, called Modeling in Color. And it was about, you know, how to design a project using colors to define different parts of the application or different, different components of your design. And that didn't really go anywhere, but tucked in the middle of this book was a little thin chapter on something called feature-driven development. And feature-driven development was an agile method. It talked about shipping, talking to your customers to find out what they want, doing it in the order of the priority that they said, showing them the work every month, and having this various ways of of demonstrating progress. Mm -hmm. And so I was hired in to lead a team at at Novell. And I said, hey, let's use this feature-driven development approach. And um, one of the people on that team said, I've heard of something called extreme programming. They're talking about it in Ward's Wiki. And I said, extreme what? <laughs> he said, yeah, uh, extreme programming. I said, that is a stupid name. I've, and we were already doing this feature-driven development thing. So let's, let's just skip that. But I started checking it out. And I checked out the c2.com wiki, Ward Cunningham's wiki, original wiki, wiki web. And they were talking about some very interesting things uh, like pair programming, which I thought was silly and incremental evolutionary design, which I also thought was silly, and test-driven development, which sounded interesting, and all these other ideas. And so when that project ended, I was hired to do another project using Perl for various things. And I said, I thought to myself, well, let me try this test-driven development thing, see how well Mm -hmm. it actually works. 
and it worked really well. It helped that I was using Perl to parse websites to extract, I think it was weather information. This is basically uh-huh. screen scraping software, which is p- basically the perfect use case for test-driven development. So it worked really well for that. And Novell brought me in to do some more work with them. And I said, let's try XP. Let's try all of it, even this silly pair programming thing. Mm-hmm. And we tried it and it worked. The more I did it by the book, the better it worked which was exactly the opposite of my previous experience. So um, I was hooked. That's awesome. Then after that, uh, Novell had me, was so happy with the results of that, they had me uh, work with their team there to, to help them rewrite a bunch of Perl software in Java and use extreme programming for that. Had, that was one of the best work experiences of my life. After that, I wanted to keep working with extreme programming, but I couldn't find anybody else in this was 2000, 2001 at this point, I couldn't find anybody else who was working in this way. So I realized that in order to keep doing this, I'd have to teach people how to do it. And that's how I became a uh, agile software development consultant. Gotcha. It's just so interesting to me. I mean, we focus so much, I think, on the technology and then we fail to give proper attention to the other things that go into it. You know, the, the people things and the process things and the automation things and the operational things. And instead we just focus on, oh, what's the next silver bullet that's going to make the technology easier. And it's, it's easy to overlook all this other stuff, especially if you have people that naturally work well together and they can sort of somewhat organically come up with systems that will work for them. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much silver bullet thinking in the industry and (laughs) not just in this industry. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. But especially I think amongst programmers, this, this real desire that all of our problems should be able to be solved by technology, right? Uh If we've got a problem, it's because we're missing a tool. And if we get a tool that solves all of our problems. But ultimately, I think the really hard problems in software development are about communication. And that, that original you know, insight I had in my teens when I realized that design, how we communicate with each other is the really important thing about software development, mm-hmm. that, that was true. I mean, it's, there's more to it than that. It's not just design, it's how we communicate with each other about everything. Right. But ultimately the computer doesn't care. And if, if all that mattered was the computer, we'd just still be using ones and zeros. But we use programming languages and we use tools like Git because they make it easier for us to collaborate. And the collaboration Mm -hmm. and figuring out how to do that well, that's the real trick. That's the real challenge. But it it can't just be something that a scrum master or a project manager does for you. You can't just communicate and not understand the technology either. You have to have Mm -hmm. both. And that's what I think software development world still lacks today. Yeah, it's funny. My brother is going through a computer science program right now. And he basically said, okay, you know, I'm learning all these things. And then he listed off a whole bunch of like subtopics to the courses he was in. And I only recognized about three of them. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's a good thing for him or a bad thing for me, but yeah, I know uh, the feeling. anyway, so, uh, but I just looked at him and I said, I don't know if I, you know, I, I may have inadvertently used some of those things. He's like, well, then what, what's the biggest thing for me to learn? And I looked at him and I said, look, when I started doing web development, you could almost get away with having one or maybe two people build something. And because, because they were simple, it wasn't because, you know, of anything else, right? They're, the tools were that great. Now they're not. It's the other way around. We have much better ways of doing things now than we did, 
you know, 12 years ago. But the difference was, was that what people envisioned for their web applications were a lot simpler. They were a lot simpler. I mean, now we're looking at things and going, oh, we could build something like Facebook or something like this or that, or, you know, Amazon. And so I said, because software has gotten so much more complicated, you need a lot more people involved to make it work. And so the best thing you can learn to do is communicate with other people. Because if you can't communicate with other people, you can't build those kinds of applications today. That's absolutely right. And, and not, yeah. not only that, it's, it used to be that one team could, could solve a problem, but now we've got mm-hmm. multiple teams working on the same product. Yes. And that, that brings out a whole nother scale of, of challenge. A big thing in the Agile movement these days is large-scale Agile. And for some people, what that means is how can we water down these ideas so they're unthreatening to my enterprise bosses, which, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a whole nother thing. And the answer is don't do that. Do something else. I mean, for God's sake, (laughs) just stop. Yeah. But, um, but, but there is this, a true large-scale Agile, which is something that I do work with companies on, which is about interdependent teams. How do you get multiple teams that are working on the same product and are dependent on each other to get their work done, how do you coordinate their work so that they can be successful? Yeah, it's, it's funny too, because I've been listening to this podcast. It's called the uh, MF CEO. And MF stands for, you know, the, the naughty words, I guess <laughs> the obvious. it stands for. Um, <laughs> I try and keep a clean rating, so I'm, I'm not going to say the, the actual words. But anyway, they, they, they did a quote by Margaret Thatcher. And I think this boils down to part of the problem that we have with this kind of thing is that nobody wants to dictate this is how we work or nobody wants to sit down and say, all right, you know, let's, you know, let's talk about these things because they don't want to stand for, stand up and and cause a a fight. And anyway, Margaret Thatcher said, and I, I had to go look up the quote, but she says, consensus, the process of abandoning all beliefs, principles, values, and policies in search of something in which no one believes, but to which no one objects. (laughs) <laughs> the process of avoiding the very issues that have to be solved merely because you cannot get agreement on the way ahead. What great cause would have been fought and won under the banner of I stand for consensus? And, and I think that's what this is, right? The thing that's really interesting is, is if you're really being diligent about implementing Agile, in my experience anyway, what I tend to find is that you're essentially forcing the communication and for, you know, pushing people to be honest so that you can reach some level of consensus, but it's not by abandoning any beliefs or principles. You're setting up the organization with the beliefs and principles, and then you're working within those to find a process that works for everybody so that, yeah. so that everybody can be effective. Yeah, it's, so it's a process for effectiveness, not for necessarily giving up on what's going to make everybody angry so that we can get work done. It's, it's absolutely true. But there's more to Agile than just the communication piece. And that's, I think that's true. I think this is something that people have lost track of. You know, I've, I, I, would just, I just looked it up. I have been programming, and I still program pretty much almost daily, even though I do all this, you know, agile stuff as well, mm-hmm. consulting and, and so forth. I've been programming for nearly 25 years. And in that time, I have yet to find anything that was as effective as extreme programming was. And the reason it was effective was not only because it had the communication aspect, but because it took a real stand on here is how software development works and here's how it can work well. Mm-hmm. And today, when you look at some of the, the influential companies out there like Pivotal, Pivotal Labs or Menlo Innovations, right. they were XP companies. They were XP companies and they still do XP. I actually think that the timing, the time is ripe for XP to make a comeback. 
because we've had a lot of people, a lot of companies that have said they want agile and then have, uh, of course, just paid it lip service and haven't actually changed the way they work in a way to make agile successful. Because of course, agile isn't magic. The way, the reason it works is because you change your environment to, to mm-hmm. be more successful, not you impose, you know, scrum right. standups and scrums on people. That's that's not agile. That's just same old stuff. Keep, keep <laughs> clean rating. Same old stuff with 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 a different name. But what what XP did? I mean, XP was founded by Kent Back and Ron Jeffries yeah. and Ward Cunningham, three brilliant programmers. I mean, Ward Cunningham, Cunningham, of course, created the Wiki Wiki Web and is known mm-hmm. for many other things as well. They understood programming first and foremost. Right. And the ideas in there, like test-driven development, which people sort of do now, although it's kind of been it's kind of been watered down as well, and merciless refactoring and evolutionary design, these are and simple design. These are some really key ideas that are fundamentally what make agile work. If if uh-huh. you think about agile as being the ability to change direction according to business needs, that's yeah. the outcome. That's what you get mm-hmm. from agile. But what makes that possible? How is it possible to write code so that you can change direction every two weeks? Well, it has to do with how you write that code. Yep. And when people talk about Agile today, they completely forget that. And that's where all those uh, good XP practices around TDD and refactoring and simple design and evolutionary design come in. And even in 2006, those were being forgotten. But I think they're completely off the radar now. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because that was totally my experience as well with a couple of teams. We had one team where we actually pushed to do Agile and then we made our boss go to an Agile conference and he was totally on board after that. But what was interesting was, yeah, those outcomes came from us implementing some of these principles. And the other thing was, was that when we implemented it, we were, all, we were also, like you said, talking to our stakeholders and, and talking amongst ourselves and you know, we did have standups and things like that, but that was all basically in service of having all of the other practices that we had in place to make sure that we were doing things the right way and getting the kind of feedback we need. And what was also interesting about it was that we would sit down every two weeks and we would have a, what's called an agile retrospective and we would talk about this is working, this isn't working. And the conclusion that I came to was that we may start at the same place with agile, but we probably won't finish in the same place with Agile with different teams because we are talking not just about writing the software, but we're talking about how we write the software and what that means. And we start implementing new things to adjust so that we are being more effective. And that's ultimately the goal. Absolutely. I mean, in an Agile team, you're not only building the product, you're building, you're building the the team that makes the product. Mm -hmm. And if if you have an agile team that's been going for a couple of years that looks anything like any of the other agile teams in your company, then there's some aspect of that that you're doing wrong. Now, of course, there's going to be some standards that uh, you need to have for consistency across teams, but ultimately, your way of doing agile should be something that's really fit for the type of work that your team does, and every team is different. Even even just because their personalities are different, just because they have different preferences. That's where uh, things like mob programming came from, which is this idea that we aren't just going to work individually or work in pairs, but we're actually going to work as a whole group around a screen. Now, personally, that's not my style. I I, <laughs> I don't think I would. I don't think I would do. I don't think I would do mob programming. But you know what? I would try it. And if I was on a team where that was worked better than pairing or working individually, 
then yeah, absolutely, we do it. Yeah, and that's really the beauty of it is that if somebody comes up with a new idea, I mean, give it a shot. And then you can say definitively, you know what, with this group of programmers, that's not going to work. Or you can say, you know what, with this group of programmers, it's not going to work. But we all kind of gelled around this little trick that we figured out with mob programming, right? So mob programming is not for us, but we figured this thing out about it. And we've incorporated that into what we do now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was telling the story of how I got involved with this, I heard about extreme programming. I thought, this is the stupidest idea I've ever oh, heard I of. I thought they were nuts. <laughs> you, you, you pair program with each other all the time. Yeah. Like, like really all the time. Yeah. And some of the other things, it's like, okay, that, that might work. But these other couple of things, those people are crazy. Yeah. But you know what? I tried it and it did work. Yep. And so I tried it more. And the more I tried it, the more it worked. And I would say that for anybody who's looking at getting into extreme programming, which if you've only done Scrum and you're listening to this, try extreme programming mm -hmm. because it is such a different experience. And uh, I do know of a book that talks about how to do it well. <laughs> it's mine. It's called The Art of Agile <laughs> Development. And it's still relevant. This is the book I wrote 10 years ago, but it's still relevant today. And, but yeah, give it a try. And, and when you try it, don't just try it for a couple of days or a couple of weeks and say, okay, we figured it out. Because some of these ideas are really non-obvious. So mm -hmm. if you're going to try them, try them for real and try them for like three months or so. That's, that's how long it took me to figure this out the first time I started doing extreme programming. It really took a lot of work to figure out what are the different ways how, what do all these terms mean? How does this all work? Of course, I didn't have a lot of resources to go off of back in 2000, uh, 1999, 2000. And part of it was trying out a bunch of different things and also uh, you know, trying to understand what these materials meant, but also figuring out how to make it my own and make it work for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. For you, for your development practices, you need data to know what, what reality is. I mean, I could say this about a lot of things in reality that we're dealing with now that I, you know, go, go look at the data because I'll just say it, you know, I mean, certain aspects of politics, I find that some parties are more correct, I guess, than others, but neither of them tell the whole story because they're all trying to push you to do something that is vote for them in this case, because we're, we're right before the election in the U.S. as we record this. But, you know, go look at the data, go look at what backs up what you think and go look at what doesn't back up what you think. And in this case, what, what, I'm, you know, what I think James is telling us to do is go experiment. Yeah, get, 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 out of, get out of your bubble. Get out of yeah. your preconceptions about, oh, this is obviously how this could work and, and try it for real. You know, Ron Jeffries has a great essay. It's called, uh, We Tried Baseball and it, doesn't, and it Didn't Work. And it's basically this, it's this story, this parable about somebody trying baseball and saying, well, obviously the, the, base, the bases are too far apart because how could you ever hit a ball that far? So they bring them in. They said, well, now we're having a problem with people not being able to catch the ball. So we're going to replace the bat with a slab of wood. And, you know, <laughs> and they do all this stuff and they end up with a complete, you know, terrible thing. And it's a terrible experience. They say, well, we tried baseball and it didn't work. So if you're going to try something, don't just, you know, and I suppose this goes for politics too. Don't just listen to the people who reinforce your beliefs. Mm -hmm. But if, if people are saying something works for them, figure out why it works. Some things only work in context. Actually, yep. many things only work in context. So what is that context? And I think the secret of Agile is that what we do is we change the context so that we can work in a way that's more successful rather than changing the work 
to deal with a dysfunctional context. Yep, 100%. All right, so what are you working on now? Well, I am still working on the Agile Fluency Project. That's at agilefluency.org. This is actually a, a set of tools for coaches and leaders and organizations to change their context so that if they're having trouble being successful with software development, it's probably because there's organizational system constraints that are preventing them from being successful. So how can you find those constraints and how, you can, how can you gather data to convince people in a position of authority to invest in changing those? That's what the Agile Fluency Project is all about. Nice. Very cool. If people want to find you online, where do they go? Agilefluency.org is the Agile Fluency Project. I also still blog at jameshore.com. You will find the world's ugliest website, proudly designed in 2003, still going. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, all the essays I've been writing since then, the URLs have never changed. So they're all still out there, all still accessible. Very cool. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. You know, I just have one right now because uh, it's, I, I just got back from a big trip and I'm not, my brain's not working as well. But I have been hearing about this, this tool called Nix. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. Uh, Nix is fascinating. It's a package management tool, and there's a corresponding Linux-based OS called NixOS, N-I-X-O-S dot O-R-G. And this is a purely functional operating system in that you can define the state of the operating system purely functionally, and you can change the state of the operating system, which kernel you're running and which dependencies you have, just by changing your configuration file. And it will do it in a deterministic way. So if if you're on the web and you care about how you deploy or you're doing DevOps or something like that, this is a tool that will help you have deterministic deployments of predictable state uh, that you can run locally and you can run in the cloud or, or on your servers really consistently. Now, I haven't tried it myself yet, but I find the idea absolutely fascinating. So NixOS is my pick today. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. I did mention one of them earlier in the show, and that was the MF CEO podcast. Now, he's talking mainly about business. But what I find is that it it really applies to a lot of areas of life, the kinds of things that he's talking about, like just taking control and taking responsibility for your life. And sure, there are going to be things that happen to you that are completely and utterly beyond your control. But ultimately, the direction your life takes is your decision. And so, you know, sometimes other people will come in and help you out. Sometimes they won't. But the largest determining factor for where you end up is what you do and how you choose to react to the things that come your way. So I'm, I'm going to pick that just because I am really digging it. 
I will warn people, some, some folks are a little bit sensitive to cursing and, and, and certain types of language. And he, he definitely, uh, he's, he's a little flamboyant as far as his uh, vocabulary is concerned. We'll put it that way. Hmm. So if that kind of thing bothers you, then just, just be aware. You may want to go listen to one and then decide whether or not that's your thing. If it doesn't bother you, if, you know, I mean, MF CEO stands for, you know, mother effing CEO. So, you know, you, you kind of get the feel there. If, if that, you know, if the, that language bugs you, don't listen to it. But if it, you know, if it doesn't bug you and you want to go learn from somebody that I think really kind of hits the nail on the head, go check it out. Yeah, I, I think that's about all I've got for this episode. So we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, James. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, we will, uh, we'll come back next week with another My Angular Story episode. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.